0: and welcome back to Vanished in the Valley. This is Athena, your host, and today we're gonna be mixing it up a little. It's been super dreary for the last like several episodes, so I thought today we would talk about people that have vanished and then been found and the reason we're doing that is because last week I had put up on it was I think it was the Instagram, I'm not sure about the Facebook. But it was a girl, she's like 13 years old, and she went missing out of Oakland. Her name is Canise Fox, and her story is, I guess they were new to Oakland, and she left her house and disappeared, had no phone, no money, no means to do anything. So, the Oakland PD were super worried because she's right in that sex trafficking age, and she's just like this cute little button of a girl. She's uh, half black, half white, has hazel eyes and curly brown hair. Super cute, super young, and very naive. Like, not from Oakland, and shouldn't be, you know, has no business running around the streets of Oakland. So, apparently, an AC transit person, like the bus drivers of Oakland... Uh, She got on a bus, and they recognized her. So the police were called, and thankfully she was returned to her mom. So finally, we have a little happy story there. But I wanted to tell you guys some stories, a couple stories today, about other people that have gone missing in California and reappeared. Um, One is going to be a story of a girl that ran away, and the other is going to be a story of a boy that was kidnapped and escaped. So, let's start with the first one. Her name is Mary Day, Mary Louise Day to be exact, and she was born in Little Falls, New York on February 19, 1968. Her dad was Charles Day and her mom was Charlotte Pressler. She has two siblings and they kind of had a rough life, okay? They were in and out of foster homes for quite a while. And apparently, the mom ends up divorcing the dad, and, you know, dad dies down the line. And her mom, Charlotte, ends up remarrying. Well, after she remarries, she gets her girls, well, she gets two of the girls out of the foster home. The foster parents ended up adopting the youngest daughter. Even once Mary goes back to live with her mom, it just, it's not a happy childhood. She gets picked up by CPS because there's abuse. It's just, it's reported that her dad, her stepdad, beat on her. And, you know, not just, like, slapping. I'm talking about, like, 1970s, 80s-style fucking beating this poor girl, like, drawing blood. And for a kid to get picked up by CPS for child abuse back in a day like that, there had to be serious abuse going on. I don't even know if they had, like, child abuse laws back then. Like, it... I don't know. It, it was thought of completely different back in the day to beat your kids. It was totally, like, a normal thing. Fuck, I think you even allowed to beat your wife back then without too many repercussions, as long as you didn't fucking kill them. Her story is, in 1981, she just went missing. Her mom told her siblings that she had run away. Because she did have a history of running away. And right there should have been, like, you know, a signal that something was really bad kids don't run away from houses that are happy and great. I've never heard of a case like that. Not when they're 13 years old. And they don't stay away forever like this. So, her mom had remarried a man who was in the army. So, they did do a lot of moving around. And, at this point in 1981, they're in a little town called Seaside, California. And, it's kind of like a military town. And, They lived on base, so it's kind of like a closed environment or whatever. But the stepdad, William Hewell, he and the mom had their, you know, two kids together, plus the three girls from the previous marriage. So it's 1981, so everyone except for Mary and Kathy had gone out that night. I don't know if they went to dinner or what, but (laughs) they left the poor girls home alone, I guess with the dog, because when they come back... Apparently, the dog is, like, dying in the kitchen. And William, the stepdad, immediately, like, accuses Mary of poisoning the dog. And literally starts beating the shit out of her. Slamming her head into a coffee table. Slamming her head into a bathtub. Like, literally beating the shit out of her. Like, I, and this is, like, a 13-year-old girl. And this is a fucking grown-ass man and a soldier at that beating the shit out of a little girl. Now, there's never anything really said why he thinks Mary poisoned the dog, but I'm sorry, if my kid poisoned a dog, I wouldn't be beating the shit out of them. I'd be getting them mental health, because that means some other shit is going on. At some point after that beating that night, Mary runs away. Never to be quote-unquote, never to be seen again from this family. Fast forward like 10 years, remember the daughter that gets adopted Sherry, the youngest one well, she kind of kept in touch with the family and she comes back and she asks where's Mary? because she thinks it's hella weird, everyone's there no one's saying anything about her and Kathy, the other sister that was not adopted says, shh we don't talk about Mary she ran away so right away, Sherry's like what the fuck? Something is crazy weird about this. This is not normal. She never really gets straight answers. She's just told that, you know, she ran away and she just goes away with a really bad feeling about that. Kathy, on the other hand, has said in a few interviews that her mom told her that in California, there's a lot of places you could bury a body. (laughs) <laughs> and if you're a regular listener of uh, Vanished in the Valley, you know that's true there's definitely a lot of places to bury a body in California but with this case, it's really strange because the parents never filed a missing persons report on Mary like, who the fuck has a 13 year old run away and you don't file a missing persons report I just, right there, I think that's super weird, um even if your kid does run away a lot, it's like you're just gonna, like, forget about them, move on with life, and pretend like you never had them. I just thought that was super fucking weird. Like, there's a lot of weird things that are gonna go into this case, so just fucking fasten your seatbelts for this one. So, prior to Mary running away, like I said, they moved around a lot. At one point, they were in Hawaii, and Kathy and Mary kind of just, you know, they were little kids together. They grew up together, and... They knew that when their father, Charles, had died, that he had left them an inheritance. And they would talk about this inheritance and kind of, like, have this fantasy where they could use this money to escape this abusive-ass household and dysfunctional life and just get away. And they had a code word for this inheritance and fantasy plan, and the code word was Mohawk. Okay? Okay. I mean, if you're, like, a little-ass kid and you're coming up with escape plans and code words like that, I just wish that, I don't know, CPS is a fucking joke here, and this is just another one of those cases that prove a lot of our institutions need a complete overhaul. When they were in Hawaii, Mary was actually taken away by CPS because of the abuse and how bad it was, and it seems like William, stepdad, focused a lot of this abuse on Mary. I don't know why. There's not really a lot of information on why it was directly focused on her. But like I was saying earlier, it got so bad that she was taken away from them. So while she was in protective custody in Hawaii, the family moved to Seaside, California. And they just left her there. So a few months later, she was released from protective custody and put back with the family that fucking abused her. Let's fast forward 1981, when she's 13 years old. They're guessing, because they don't even have an exact date, because no police reports were filed. So after Mary ran away, the family, you know, didn't talk about her. She was, you know, just gone, pretending like she never existed. The whole family moves again, and this time to New York. And Sherry... She's the one that I was telling you about earlier. She went and visited and was told they can't talk about her. She decided to file a missing persons report. And this was like 13 years after Mary's disappearance. Because all of the talk about, you know, where you can put bodies and shit, she actually kind of told the police at that point she thought her sister had been murdered and buried at the seaside property on base in California. So... Oh, these fucking explosions. I swear to God, I'm going to choke the next motherfucker that sets off a firework. Ugh. So, check this out. The police report was filed in 1994, but for some reason, the Seaside Police only received the case in 2002. And that's when they actually launched the investigation. Right there, it's like... I, I keep coming back to, we need to fucking get a solid way... That every single police force investigates missing people's cases. So that way shit isn't missed. That way you can't just like get written off as a runaway and slip through the cracks. If we have a uniform, way police departments and law enforcement are responding to missing people's cases, There could be as simple as a fucking checklist and make sure you run through this checklist to make sure all your bases are covered. Because In this investigation, and even the the detectives have said that, looking back on the investigation, so many times different things slipped through the cracks, and information was lost and missed, and, you know, I think this case could have been resolved a lot faster if, you know, if we had this uniform way of going about missing persons cases. I swear to fucking God, I'm going to get this petition together one of these days when I have a minute. So, the detectives go to the house where Mary went missing from, the one in Seaside on the base, that um, military base or army base or whatever. And they actually brought Kathy with them. And Kathy was actually able to, like, point them to this little area in the backyard where William, the stepdad, had always told them not to play. So, everybody, of course, thought that was hella suspicious. They're thinking, okay, is there a dead body there? So, the seaside police actually brought in cadaver dogs. And not one, not two, but four cadaver dogs hit on this same spot in this corner where the kids were told they are not allowed to play. And as we all know, cadaver dogs react to the scent of human decomposition. So, I don't know, at some point, at some time, there was a dead body there. So the police start digging, and lo and behold, they come across a kid's shoe. And it was Keds brand, and I fucking hell remember Keds. I used to rock the Keds back in, like, the 90s all the time. They were what's up. I don't even know if they make them anymore, but they were, like, the signature cool kid shoe. Everybody had them. So they find this one shoe, and... They just dig, and they're digging and digging, and they never come across a body. So, one of the handlers are like, our dogs don't miss. There had to have been a body here at some point, and it's been moved. So, the Seaside Detectives, at this point, start thinking that Mary was buried there, but, I don't know, William must have dug her up or something and brought her to the next house. They decide they gotta track down these fucking parents, because who the fuck has a kid go missing and doesn't report it? And now they also have dogs hitting on decomp in a backyard where they used to live. So they're kind of thinking this is going to be a homicide investigation, not so much a missing persons investigation. So they tracked down Charlotte and William in Kansas at this point. And Charlotte agreed to do a police interview. There's actually a video of it online. And... She seems pretty calm. Uh, She doesn't, like, you know, act nervous or, you know, do anything hella crazy in the interview. I watched it today. She, like, walks in, and the first thing she says is, you guys don't have any whips or chains, do you? I'm like, what the fuck? (laughs) Who says that one? I don't know. I just thought that was kind of weird, but whatever. So the police are questioning her, and she tells them repeatedly, like, over and over, over that Mary had run away. And when they ask her why she never tried to find her, she literally says, if she's dead, she's dead. I'm like, not even fucking with you. You can look at this interview and see this woman say that. And I'm like, you fucking cold-hearted bitch. If she's dead, she's dead. Who says that about their 13-year-old daughter? Well, this bitch does, obviously. The police also interview William. I didn't see, like, the video of this, but I did read it. And... He just kind of, like, goes over that last night where the dog was dying. And he says, you know, Mary poisoned the dog, and he just, like, saw red. He describes it as a demon inside of him beat her and could have killed her. He didn't kill her, but a demon inside of him could have killed her. The police basically take this kind of as a confession, and they don't arrest him or anything. I think they just are like, what the fuck? Did this guy just say what he... What? What's going on here? A demon inside him could have killed him? William tells the police that the dog's dying on the kitchen floor. He sees fucking red and just starts beating the shit out of her. He says that he, like, hit her in the chest. Um, He didn't kill her or anything, but he does remember hitting her in the chest, and his hand may have slipped up to her throat. And the detectives are like what the fuck who hits a girl like that in the chest this is a grown ass man and they straight up ask him did you kill her that night and he's like no I didn't kill her but Charlotte does say I was possessed by a demon that night so maybe the demon killed her but I didn't kill her but the demon definitely could have killed her so they leave it at that the detectives leave that you know situation I guess maybe to go think about it stew on it I don't know because some of the people totally disagreed with that move. Other people in the police department were like, why didn't you arrest him? And that was basically an admission. But the lead detective was like, no, I don't feel like we have enough evidence at this point, so let's keep a digging. So at this point, they can't find any trace of her. There's literally, like, no hits on her social. She's never had a job. She never went to school. She's on a welfare. She hasn't, yeah, no hospital records, nothing. They're just like, we don't know what to do at this point. And I guess it was like, I've read some places it was seven months, other places nine months. But the lead detective that is on the case gets a call. And a patrol officer is like, are you sitting down? And the detective's like, yeah, what's going on? He's like, you're never going to believe this, but we found Mary Day. There was a traffic stop in Phoenix, Arizona, because a truck had stolen license plates. And when the cops asked for ID, the woman handed over an ID, and it was Mary Louise Day. So, with this information, they're completely in disbelief. They think either it's an imposter... It's anything other than the actual Mary Day, because this is 22 years later, guys, and suddenly she just pops up nine months into a murder investigation. So their wheels are a-turnin'. And, and by the way, the detectives' names are Detective Britannia and Steve Circoni. Both the detectives, or one of the detectives call her. It's Steve Circoni. And he's talking to her, and... She is saying she is the Mary Day, the 13-year-old that ran away. She has certain vivid memories of her childhood and other memories that are just kind of gone or blacked out, which I think is totally consistent with somebody that has led a hugely traumatic childhood getting beaten and having their head slammed into things. So both the detectives are super skeptical, and they order DNA tests. They think that, you know, none of this shit's going to come back positive and we can finally prove this is an imposter and get back to the homicide investigation. Well, it turns out the DNA tests prove that this woman, this, they call her Phoenix Mary. Phoenix Mary is the daughter of Charlotte and they're fucking astounded. They were not expecting this outcome at all. There's actually, there's a, there's, the interviews are, were recorded, so if you want, you can go on the internet and actually listen to the interviews, and what I noticed, and actually the detectives noticed, too, is she has this, like, not necessarily a southern accent, but it's definitely a strange accent. It's not a California accent at all, and, you know, Mary was brought up in California. They're kind of thrown off by that and they start t- talking to different, like, I guess, linguistics professors, and they listen to the recording, and the professors are saying that it would have taken, like, nine or ten years to develop this type of an accent. And Mary claims that, you know, she'd only been in the South a couple of years. So there, there's no explanation on why she has this type of a fucking, this dialect or this accent, whatever you want to call it, After the DNA match was done, the police did decide to close the case. And Sherry and Mary decide to move to North Carolina and live together. But once they move in, Sherry has, like, some super doubts that this is her sister Mary. So both the detectives and Sherry now just... They're they're not buying it. They just... Something is telling them that there's a scam going on here. They can't really point their finger on it, but it just, it doesn't seem like this is legit Mary Louise day. So, Mary ends up moving out after about a year of living with her sister, and these detectives, you know, the case may be closed, but in their mind, they're thinking that this is, this is some hogwash, okay? There's some bullshit going on in this case. So, He, Detective Zirconi, ends up hiring a retired homicide detective, Mark Clark, to look into it, and at this point, Mark Clark goes into it thinking that there was a murder committed and Phoenix Mary is an imposter. He starts investigating it, and in 2017, Mary is diagnosed with cancer, and she actually doesn't have very long to live, and these detectives decide they really need to get to the bottom of this case and solve it before she is gone forever. Acting chief of the seaside police, Judy Velos, decides to travel to Missouri where Mary's living and try to get some more information you know on this case. You know she gets there, she starts interviewing Mary and what seals the deal and gets her to actually believe this is Mary is not some DNA but like a 20 year old picture of Mary with these two girls, and what the story is on that, I guess a year after Mary ran away, a woman ended up taking her in, and she stayed with this woman um, and her two daughters for about a year and just lived, and one of the family members happened to take a picture of this time when they were all together. I guess, yeah, this, this picture, they were able to send it off to professionals and they did some sort of facial recognition software, they ran it through, and it came back with a 99% positive hit that Mary, Phoenix Mary is Mary Louise Day. So, after that, that one picture, the DNA, uh, after that, they truly closed the case and decide that This is Mary Louise Day. She did survive all of those years as a runaway teenager. You know, it it doesn't have the greatest, happiest of endings. You know, it's not like she reconnected with her family and it was all happy days after that. Not at all. But it's just, you know, that's just to show that sometimes weird shit does happen and people survive against all odds and a 13-year-old girl can hitchhike her way across the country and survive. It does sound like Mary had a hard life to begin with, and after she ran away, it didn't seem like it got much easier, but it seems like she lived life on her own terms, and she wasn't going to put up with an abusive stepdad and a mom that honestly doesn't give a fuck, so she left and, you know, wanted to go see what was out there and lived a different life, and hey, up top to you, Mary. You did it, and you did it on your terms, so that's one story of a survivor, man. Um, If you guys want to look into it, I know there's a 48 Hours episode about it. There's a lot of stuff you can... Well, not a lot of stuff, but there's stuff you can find on the internet about it just because it's such a crazy case. Like, who the hell thinks a 13-year-old girl can just, like, disappear and survive on her own without using her social or anything like that? I think I've even said, like, it was on the Carissa case. Like, how does a 15-year-old disappear and not use her social? Well, here's Mary's example. She disappeared and lived for many years and traveled around and, you know, it's kind of a shitty story, but she survived and, hey, it can happen, so never lose hope. The next story I'm about to tell you about is Stephen Stainer, and he's from Merced, California. Get ready for this one, shoot Okay, so Steven Stainer was born April eighteenth, nineteen sixty five, and he lived in Merced, California. Merced is kind of like Nowhere'sville, especially back in the seventies. Yeah, it's basically just like orchards and like kind of super rural. So he lived in Merced with uh, his five siblings and his dad Dilbert and mom Kay. Uh, he had three sisters and an older brother. Um, the older brother, Carrie Stainer, actually was convicted and sentenced to death for the infamous Yosemite murders. Um, yeah, he's a serial killer, piece of ship rapist, and if you ever want to be super creeped out, look up Carrie Stainer. It was a huge case in California back in, like, 1999. It was, I don't know if it was, like, a huge national story, but, yeah, it was fucking terrible and is a disgusting human, and I think he's just sitting on death row, because California, like, yeah, you can get sentenced to death row, but it's not like they're actually ever going to carry it out, so I think he's probably sitting in San Quentin or something, but anyway, back to, back to Stephen, so December 4th, 1972, he's on his way home, and so, Urban Edward Murphy approaches him with all this gospel paperwork, asking if he thought if his mom would make a donation to a church. And Stephen, being, you know, the cute little seven-year-old he was, is like, yeah, sure, I think my mom would make a donation. So, he convinces him to get into this car. They say he, they're going to drive him to his house so this, his mom can make this donation to the church. And gets into the car and Kenneth Parnell is driving. And he is already at this point a convicted pedophile. Um, He had been working at a resort in Yosemite National Park. And the guy, the Irvin Edward guy, has everywhere I read he's described as kind of simple and kind of having like a low IQ or being slow. So it sounds like he wasn't like, actively trying to kidnap this kid. It sounds like he was manipulated into kidnapping him by Parnell. So once Stephen's in the car with Parnell, he is driven to Yosemite. Oh, it's so horrible. He basically gets there, and that night, he's put in a cabin located actually only a few hundred feet from his grandfather's residence. So this is a little warning, guys. This is where it gets kind of graphic. So the first night he is kidnapped, he is put in this cabin, and Parnell molests him. And 13 days later, he begins raping Stephen. He tell him he uh Stephen tells Parnell that he wants to go home several times during this first week, but Parnell is able to convince him that he's been adopted, and that Parnell is now his father, and that his family doesn't want him anymore. So he basically brainwashes this kid. And he's also drugging him with cough syrup. I don't know if there's any other drugs involved, but for surely he's being drugged. And they Parnell changes his name to Dennis Gregory Parnell. Um, they change his name, they change his birth date, and he was actually able to enroll him in different schools over the next years. This is like the days before computers, so you could literally just like fucking go to any school and be like, this is my kid and enroll him. I guess the schools never even just they never requested like transcripts or anything because this went on for several years several different schools that he was transferred to and nobody thought it was weird. To deal with all the abuse Parnell put on him, Stainer started drinking at a young age and he kind of had no rules. He was able to come and go as he pleased. Uh, Parnell bounced from job to job and They usually went from one fleabag motel to another, or dilapidated houses. One of the few positive aspects of Stephen's life was he got a dog from Parnell. It was a Manchester Terrier that he named Queenie. The dog had been given to him by his mother, who was not aware of Stainer's existence during the period in which he was living with Parnell. And I got that from Wikipedia. So, for 18 months, uh, Barbara Matthias lived with them, and According to Stephen, Mateus and Parnell raped him on nine separate occasions at at the age of nine. And then, I guess Mateus tried to lure another young boy in Santa Rosa's Boys Club into Parnell's club, but they, thank God, it was unsuccessful. Mateus later claimed to have been completely unaware that Dennis had, in fact, been kidnapped. Dennis, in quotes, because that was the fake name that Stephen had been given. So, as Stanner hit puberty, the pervert Parnell was less and less attracted to him, because his thing was, you know, young children. And, I'm just like, over all of these years, nobody thought anything was strange, nobody thought it was weird, this fucking kid is drinking, and, I I don't know, there was just like no red flags anywhere. I just, I, it's amazing to me that they were able to get away with it for that long, And I pray to God that something like that couldn't get away. You couldn't do that nowadays, like enroll some kidnapped kid in school and nobody knows they're a fucking alcoholic at the age of 12. Parnell had used Stephen to uh, try to kidnap other kids on different occasions, but none of them worked. And so because none of this ever worked, Parnell just kind of thought that he lacked the skills or something. But Stephen says that he purposely messed up every attempt to kidnap the other kids. So because Parnell couldn't get his kicks off now on somebody that was not, you know, Stevens no longer prepubescent, on February 14th, 1980, Parnell and a friend of Stevens named Randall Sean Porman kidnapped five-year-old Timothy White, and that was in Ukiah. I guess Stephen saw how upset the boy was He hatched a plan to get the boy back to his parents. So on March 1st, 1980, this is two weeks later, uh, White Parnell was away for the night. Stainer grabbed White, the little boy, and they hitchhiked back to Ukiah. But they were unable to locate where the boy lived. And they went to the police station and asked for help police officer spotted and detained both of them and Stanner immediately identified white and revealed his own true identity. By daybreak on March 2nd, this is 1980, they arrested the fucking pervert and put him in jail. And you guys check this out. He only gets seven years. And they don't do any charges for the sexual abuse because they said they couldn't like prove it or some bullshit like that. They reunited both of the kids with their families. I'm just, like, blown away that... uh, The prosecutor says it was outside the statute of limitations, but I'm... uh, Come on. He said... uh, Okay. If it's outside the statute of limitations, why can't they charge him with the rapes that happened before he left? Like, you know, I'm sure... You know, what is it? Like, seven years or something? That would be going on the assumption that he was only raped the first year that he had him. So the prosecutor and Merced dropped the ball and we we see this a lot with kidnapping and sexual abuse cases where either the person's not charged or they are charged and they're just giving these ridiculously short sentences. Stephen goes back to his family and of course they're all super happy to see him it's reported that in school Stephen was hella bullied. They used to call him, okay watch out guys I'm about to make some slurs here they would call him a faggot. They would make all types of horrible, just like, gay slurs because they had come out in the media that he had been sexually assaulted by Parnell. And even with all this bullying, he seemed to have a pretty happy outlook. And he got a girlfriend. He did help on a couple of movies about his life, so he had a little bit of money. But his mother would never allow him to go to counseling or any type of therapy. So he never really got to professionally deal with all the abuse that was inflicted upon him. And he dealt with it by drinking. He, you know, he ends up getting married. He has a couple of kids. But it's just, I don't know. He married 17-year-old Judy Edmondson. And he worked with different child abduction groups. And he would try to teach people about personal safety. And he would give interviews he did become a Mormon just before his death, and when he did die on September 16th, 1989, he was working at a pizza shop and living in Merced. He sustained a fatal head injury when he was on his way home from work. 500 people attended his funeral, and Timothy White, you know, the one he rescued, he was a pallbearer bearer at this funeral. So, I mean, that story, like, yeah, Stephen was rescued and he came back to his family. He just, he had to go through untold horror and abuse to get home. And it just, look at the human spirit. He survived all of that. He came back. He dealt with all these asshole kids that just relentlessly bullied him about being homosexual. Even though he wasn't. God, to be a a kid in the 80s in Merced, fuck my life. I don't know, man. The The pervert that took him, uh, Parnell, he ends up getting arrested. I remember this, too. This wasn't too long ago. He gets arrested for trying to take another kid not too long ago. Thank God it was unsuccessful, and he goes to prison, and he did die there. So, it's like, when are these people in the justice system going to realize that the child predators, they don't fucking change. They don't stop, and it's like, some nasty ass shit in their mind that is a compulsion to sexually abuse children. So hopefully sometime our justice system will start recognizing that and actually protect children and stop protecting these perpetrators. But, I don't know, I just wanted to show you guys, sometimes people do come back and they can be gone for 7 years, 10 years, 20 years like Mary, and then suddenly just pop up against all odds. So hopefully that will happen with Vanessa. And speaking of Vanessa, it was reported that other remains have been found by the area where they found the remains of Gregory Wydell Morales. They haven't identified these other remains yet, so we are waiting to hear from the military about that. So I don't know, guys. There's still hope Vanessa may be out there. And these are just two examples. There are so many other ones, like Elizabeth Smart. That's the one that just comes off the top of my head. Amanda Berry. All those girls that were in that Ohio perverts dungeon. So what happens? Sometimes they come back, and let's cross our fingers and hope Vanessa comes back. Um, I'm not sure. We might have a bonus episode this Thursday, so you'll just have to check back and see. But in the meantime, be aware, and don't forget your pepper spray. Ciao. chao <laughs> Oh, uh-huh.